This is the Boxing Betting Show with Tom Craze. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Boxing Betting Show. Now, if you're new to the show, as the name suggests, this is a podcast focused exclusively on boxing betting, jam-packed with odds analysis, value picks and interviews with industry experts. If you're a return listener, you'll know all of that already, and you'll know that I am your host, and my name is Tom Craze. The last episode was the first of the year, um, first since lockdown, and it's long overdue, really, but I wanted to say thank you to all of those who did take the time to listen, just saying how much you enjoyed it, it it means a lot, um, and it had some really good feedback, both on, (laughs) probably more for uh, the guests last week, Andy Clark and myself, one of the listeners, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying, um, Andrew Harrison, former writer for Boxing Monthly, and actually appeared on last season of the show, if you remember, described Andy Clark's description of scoring as the best and clearest he'd heard in 30-odd years. Now, <laughs> I can't take any credit for that myself, but Andrew, rest assured that your check is in the post. All of which is to say that if you do enjoy the show, and I completely forgot to do this deal last episode, um, please do consider leaving a review, a rating, um, giving it a like or a share, wherever you get your podcast from. It really does help in kind of keeping up the momentum now the show is back and uh, firmly in the groove once more. So overall, it was quite a nice weekend. Quite pleased actually with the Lyndon Arthur decision, which landed a little bit more straightforward than I thought it might. Last Friday on the Queensbury show, that was uh, 7 to 4, so plus 175. Uh, and the most confident stake of the weekend was Jordan Gill by decision. Um, average odds for that were around 10 to 11. Um, so minus 110, just below even money for that one. Uh, what else? There was also James Tennyson outright, uh, which landed without too much fuss. But a couple of near misses as well. Um, Ted Cheeseman, of course, was taking the distance in a fantastic fight against Sam Eggington um, and sided with the rounds in... Fabio Wardley against Simon Vlilly, again purely on the basis of price. Wardley made light work, really, of Vlilly and, and stopped him in pretty quick time, which was always the most likely outcome, uh, and, and the danger, of course, with a puncher like that. Now, as good as the first instalment of Fight Camp was, it's fair to say there's a bit less to get excited about this week from a betting standpoint. Nonetheless, and as ever, really, we'll run through the card later on in the show. But first, and the main attraction of this show really, is the second part of my extended interview with Andy Clark. Last week, Andy and I went back to basics on how to score a fight. The motive being that if you're putting any sum of money on a fight, considerable or otherwise, it would be foolish to not, at the very least, be able to critically assess what you're watching. In part two of what I thought was a refreshingly honest interview, actually, and look, the way it was going, Andy and I could have ranted away for the rest of the afternoon, Um, But we continue to talk about scoring, um, but also delve a little bit deeper to talk about judging, robberies, bad scorecards, and much more besides. You mentioned home advantage when you were talking about Warrington Selby. And home advantage is something I've spoken about at length, really, certainly last um, season on the show. And it's something when when I'm trying to price up my own um, odds for, for a fight in advance of the public odds being released I will always try and factor in home advantage and kind of enduring question is how much of an advantage is home advantage for me 
and it's something that I kind of wrestle with and you think you've got a formula and say, well, it's going to be worth X percent or whatever it might be. And that will have to get absorbed into the price of not necessarily the favorite, but the home fighter. Um, and if it's not, when the prices get released, then that's something that you'll be ready to kind of pounce on and say, well, he, this guy's at home, that hasn't been looked at in the price here. And also that applies to, I think, sometimes the, the house fighter, even if they're not geographically at home, if they're a, uh, an ex-promotions fighter or an ex-promotions card, that has an impact on the price, or certainly should. Do you think that actually applies in boxing to the level that I do? Is home advantage a factor? And if so, how much do you think it is? I think it depends really on the advantage of being at home, for me, lies in familiarity with your surroundings and that lends itself to a very familiar feel to your regime to the build-up in the days before to what's going to happen on the day of the fight because you've been there before you've done it before mm. so if you're boxing at a venue that you boxed at a lot of times so ricky hatton at the manchester arena for example then i think that really is going to work in your favor i mean that, that's an extreme example because obviously he's got twenty thousand mancunians in there screaming his name but that is the ultimate home advantage because that is a place where he's boxed loads. It's in his home city. So he's got a big crowd and they're all supporting him. But it's the fact that he's been through that ritual in the same place so many times means that it's really familiar and really comfortable. And I think when you've got that, then it really does make a difference in the same way that a football team, of course, are uh, as familiar as you can possibly be with their own ground, whereas the other team come to it once a season. And I think that's why team sports, where you've got a fixed location that you always use for your home fixtures, that's why that makes it a real thing. In, in boxing, I just apply the same rule, basically. So if you've got a British fighter, say from, I don't know, Newcastle, and they're defending their title or they're in a big fight, and it just so ends, it just ends up being at the O2 on a pay-per-view, um, and they've not boxed there before, that's not really that much of an advantage, I don't think. Um, Although if their opponents come from overseas and, and, and if it's their first time, you know, you have to try and calculate it, don't you? But, but I think there are degrees of it. So, you know, like Hatton in Manchester, you know, that was a big factor for him, I think. Um, and when you add it to the fact that he's very, very good, then in fights like the one against Costas G, where you need that little bit extra to go somewhere you've never been before, there's no way that that home factor is not going to... Is not going to count. But when you look at the United States, for example, I wonder how many fighters really enjoy a proper home advantage factor. Wilder Wood in, yeah, in yeah. Um, Crawford Wood in Nebraska. There aren't many, though, are there? No, I, I think it's, it's less of a factor. I think you've got Javonta Davis is, is another in, in Baltimore. Um, it's definitely less, I think it's definitely less tribal, isn't it, in the, in, in the States compared to particularly in the UK where you have increasingly you know football fans um going to to boxing shows and football fans in football stadiums watching boxing shows it's there's less um I mean it's a much bigger country for starters but there's less kind of identity attached sometimes to a fighter um and you know overall boxing is a is a smaller sport in the in the US than it is in in the UK you know there's a lot more noise above it in terms of other um other things to compete with so yeah, I, I think using your Hatton example, what you're saying is Hatton fighting over and over at the Manchester Arena would have a bigger advantage than Hatton fighting um, Lascano at the City of Manchester Stadium. 
Whereas yeah, he, I think he'd be more comfortable. He'd be yeah. more comfortable yeah. because that's what it is for me. It's about routine and familiarity and, and you know how the day of the fight will go. You'll leave your house at the same time. You'll, you'll pull up in the car park. You know the bloke on the door. It's not going to be a hassle. He's not going to say, where's your pass? Things like that. You know, it's like you know what's going to happen. And I know with Josh, he hadn't boxed at Ellen Road before, but he's been there loads of times because yeah. he's a Leeds fan and he probably would have gone down there before and done the walk and, you know, done all of those things. And you will see fighters do that, particularly when they're, they're boxing at a venue for the first time, particularly if they're coming from overseas. You'll see them in the afternoon. Um, they want to find out where the dressing room is. They want to do the walk to the ring to kind of maybe do a bit of visualisation. They want to know where the car park is because they don't want any surprises later on that, that really throws their preparations out of kilter. That, yeah, that, that for me is what, in boxing, is, is what home advantage is, is about. And, and it can be a real thing. So if you, you know, if you can build up your fan base in your hometown and have your fights there, I think that really, really can work for you. And I think it's something that the fighters are maybe neglecting a little bit now. It, it was me and Matt Macklin were talking to Josh the other week on our podcast and he was explaining to us how he'd managed to build up that following and how long it took and what hard work it was. But it was so important. You know, it just gives you that extra couple of percent. Um, and, it, but I don't think it's that much of a factor in boxing overall, possibly. Uh, but if you've got it, if you have that, that, that following and that home venue and that real local support, which will stick with you, I think it. I think it can definitely make a difference, but not that many people have it. I think Warrington's a good example, isn't it? In, t- in terms of how vocal and how, I guess, how large that you know that Leeds fan base actually is. That's a huge factor. Um, and I mean, in hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. But seven to two at home, yeah, it's uh, it, it's one of those. And a more recent one, I guess, is um, the idea, or, or certainly the mooted fight of um, Carl Frampton against Jamal Herring. Odds-wise, that's a completely different fight. If you're putting that in America compared to, you know, uh, Frampton at home in Belfast, suddenly that becomes a completely separate um, proposition. And, and people say, well, how would you price up this fight? And I, I get that question asked quite a lot. And he said, well, look, un- until I know the venue, it's very hard to say. I can give you yeah. a price based on neutral ground, but pull it here and, and that, that swings completely. It, it does, absolutely it does. And... Um... Uh, one that I think recently that was quite a good example of that, um, and I'm going to contradict what I've just said here to an extent, was, was Regis Progray against Josh Taylor. Um, uh, Josh is from Scotland, obviously, and that fight was at the O2, but there was a real feeling around that fight that the kind of UK fight fans were getting behind Josh Taylor, um, and the support of there on the night was, was overwhelmingly in his favour, although people are kind of taken to Progray because he's a really nice lad. But he was behind Josh in the arena, 100%. You know, well, not quite 100%, but overwhelmingly behind Josh. Sure. So that was much a kind of home fixture for him. And it was an amazing fight. It was probably the best fight I've been ringside for in terms of the quality and the intensity and the atmosphere and all those things. Uh, and on the night, I actually scored that for Progre. And I remember saying afterwards, I've got a bit of grief about it. But it was fine because, like I said, you know, I can show my workings and... and um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't one that, that, that bothered me. I had no issue whatsoever with Taylor getting the decision. It was, it was one of them where I felt not quite 116, 112 either way and anything in between, but, but, but not far off that, that kind of fight. In my view, if that had been in America, Progre would have got the decision. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I mean, that close. I mean, there was one judge who gave it to, to Josh by five points, which I thought was insane. Um, but you might have got that against him in America. And yeah. I, I think that's exactly the same with the odds. If I remember, it was, I think Taylor was eight to 13 favourite. Um, I believe someone asked me that exact question. You know, how, how would you price that? Progo would be the favourite to that extent in America, put it in the O2 or, um, you know, Glasgow or wherever. And yeah, you turn that on its head. I agree. I, I mean, I scored that for Taylor. Uh, I can't remember the exact score. It obviously is very close. Um, but yeah, there, there was certainly a spread of scores that I wouldn't have been unhappy with there at all. Yeah, it was just that, that kind of close fight. But I remember just thinking to myself, um, wow, that was absolutely brilliant. Um, congrats to the winner. Uh, I wouldn't have argued whoever would have got it or if it had been a draw. Um, but it just struck me as I was leaving. I just thought, yeah, it's one of those, isn't it? I think if, you know, if it had been in America, then Progre, he might well have got it. He was in the UK and, and, and Josh Taylor got it. And, but that, that, that is the way it goes sometimes. Like boxing is, uh, you do get fights that are just close and you've got rounds where, as I said, you could, you, you've got close ones and if you give them all to one guy, then he wins. If you give them all to the other guy, then he wins. If you split them, then you get a draw. You know, it's, 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 right. that's how it goes, isn't it, sometimes? I wanted to get your thoughts on how home advantage is affected. Um, and, and, well, I guess really, not necessarily home advantage, but how judging as a whole is affected with boxing moving behind closed doors and, and the influence of crowds or, or rather the lack of crowds. Um, I seem to be talking about football quite a lot on the show, but I saw some interesting stats on the return of um, uh, the Bundesliga uh, and, and obviously kind of English football over the past few weeks as well. Again, going back to home advantage, completely different sport. I know that. And, and obviously the sample sizes are really small as well. But again, just with that idea of grappling with home, home field advantage, really. Six match days back after lockdown in the Bundesliga, home wins were down to just 20%, so one in five. In the, the months before lockdown, so from the time the season started, August through to March, home wins were at 45%. I mean, that's a huge drop. And yeah. eventually that was factored into the odds, but there were a few weeks where, or certainly a few games where it took the bookies a while to kind of catch up with what was going on. Um, and it was the same story in in um, in the English Championship, 43% down to 39%. So again, smaller, but it's still there. The, there's this element that removing crowds does matter. Boxing, obviously, is completely different, and we're going to have a much, much smaller sample size in terms of simply not being able to churn out the, the fixtures, as it were. But do you think this removes the the advantage of home field completely for fighters or, or house fighters? How do you think that works? And how do you think, I guess, more importantly, how will the judges adapt to that? I think there is an advantage for being at home in terms of the crowd can sway the judges. I think that's, it's, it's human nature. Um, I do feel an affinity with, with, with officials because I, I, I talk to them a lot and, and, I, and I know how hard they work at, doing their job right and nothing kills them more than being accused of any kind of bias or corruption or anything like that and they just just they, they know it's not true and, and I and I know it's the ones I know I know it's absolutely not but you do get swayed by by a home crowd or at least you can be um, and I think that's only that's to be expected 
in in a lot of ways. You look at and again, like you say with football, you can produce stats to you know how you get the most penalties at home and all that kind of thing. Right. That should really be removed, I think, by there being no crowd. So we, I would hope that any kind of home advantage reflected in the scores should be removed completely because the only other home advantage you're talking about then is the fact that they might be the house fighter. Uh, and of course, there is never any reason why anyone should favour uh, the fighter just because they're the house fighter. Now, I know people will say, oh, but it happens. But you can't factor that into any kind of assessment of how a fight is going to go or how a fight might be scored. Because once you disappear down that rabbit hole, then you're never coming back up, basically. Then you, you might. Do you think that happens, Andy? Do you think it's, it's sometimes the case that the guy who's meant to win will get, in, in the case of a draw, drawn round or, or the reigning champion, would get that, that nod subconsciously? I think that can happen. I think that can happen. But again, I think that might be more down to the fact that um, somebody might have it in their head. They might have allowed it just to infiltrate their thought that he's supposed to win. Yeah. Not in the kind of the promoters told me he must win, but I know because I know my boxing, whoever it is, they might just think it's just in there, you know, subconsciously, subliminally, he's supposed to win. That can have, that can have an effect. And I do think sometimes it, it does happen. That um, that yeah, some international judges on occasions may feel that the home promoter expects them to favour their fighter. It's never said, and they Eddie Hearn said to me before when there's been when there's been um, the old strange score. He he said, God, like some of these guys, I think they think that that's what we want, but it isn't. Mm, yeah. Um, and I think there is some of that going on. If you if you if you like read stuff with 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 Hauser, Thomas Hauser talking about the appointment of officials in, in New York, he's you know he will go places that other people just aren't prepared to, which which you know is what makes him so great. But he'll basically just say, well, of course, you know these people like this gig. They like being in New York City in a nice hotel. They like the 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 kudos that goes with it, and and uh, they know that if they want to be reappointed as or approved as a judge or a referee by this certain promoter, um, then they need to they need to fall in line, and they're happy to do it. You know, he's very very open about what he thinks happens there, um, and there's no doubt that some of that does go on around the world. I, I think it'd be pretty naive to say that it doesn't. In terms of, I guess, a, a state of the nation summary, um, I guess, kind of literally, because I think. The UK has been, hasn't covered itself in glory with some of the decisions we've seen um, over the past few years. How do you think things can be improved, scoring-wise and 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 kind of judging-wise? Um, you've seen, you know, people talk about the idea of um, referee interviews, for example. People say, uh, sorry, referee interview judges. Uh, interviews. Um, some people say five judges is the answer. Maybe you know three judges ringside and a remote judge. Do you think there is any way to produce a sort of step change? I don't think there's anything wrong with the way they do with with the system now. They, it's just a question of of people uh, of, of getting judges of the highest possible quality. Uh, I think I, I'm not necessarily a fan of of judges having to explain their decisions at the end of fights to, to television because. 
I don't think that would necessarily achieve very much because often what that will result in is because all television networks are attached to a certain promoter um, and say this one judge is given a score that they feel is out of kilter um, with that, then is that fair to just kind of get somebody on? What I'm saying is that the TV can have an agenda too. And they might think, oh, that was a bad score. Um, does everybody else think that was a bad score? Or is it just you who thinks that was a bad score? So I don't think that they should be hauled up in front of the, you know, the beak, if you like, at the end of a fight to explain themselves. They, they are held accountable. The British Boxing Board of Control hold their officials accountable. Um, I know that. I don't think that the governing bodies, the sanctioning bodies rather, I don't think that, that they are held accountable enough. I think if you turn in a bad score, um, certainly if you turn in a couple in close proximity, um, then you should be benched for a, for a good while. And if you do it again, then you should be, have your status taken off you. It should be performance related. And yes, it is subjective, but there are certain cards that you look at um, and we see them too often. Often there'll be the road card out of a three, so you still get the right winner. And in that case, they're often not scrutinized enough. Yeah, yeah. But often we see these, these inexplicable cards and you look at it and you just think that isn't down to the side of the ring they're on. That isn't down to show me your workings on that one. You know, that's what I think about some of them. There have been a couple recently, you know, uh, Alvarez, Golovkin the first time around, the 118, 110 from, from Adelaide Bird. Show me your workings on that one because you're never going to convince me that that was anything other than total nonsense. Um, and Wilder Fury, the first fight, the 115-111 from, from uh, Alejandro Rochin, which gives Wilder <laughs> seven rounds out of 12. Show me your workings on that one. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's not good enough. It's just not good enough. And I don't think people are held to account enough. I'm not saying they should be hauled over the coals and you get thrown away, cast out of ringside, never to return. But this is important, you know. These are people's livelihoods. These are... These are their futures that we're talking about in, in, in a lot of cases. And, and um, there's nothing that gives boxing more of a bad rap than a really bad decision. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, I think the WBC claim that they look into these things more. And the, but the thing is, it's, it's, it's also, say you've got a fight where one fighter quite you know, quite, does quite clearly win and, and you've got, I don't know, you've got a couple of 116, 112s and the 117, 111. I still think at the end of fights, you should still look at those scorecards and look how many rounds do they agree on um, and just provide some kind of analysis of it if you're the sanctioning body because if you've got two guys who, who, have, uh, who have scored it both 116, 112, that's fine. But if they've got a load of different round scores, then... That's not fine because right. by luck almost they've ended up with the same scores. Um, so there's a lot of things that need to be, yeah, that do need to be that need to be looked at. It's, I, I mean, one thing I think that they might do as regards to kind of the architecture of it, if you like. I wouldn't mind if judges were encouraged to be more willing to give a 10-8 without a knockdown. Because yeah. the problem at yeah. the minute is, you know, you could batter me for a round. Um, the referee might even be about to jump in and stop it. Um, 
but I don't go down and you win that round 10-9. In exceptional cases, judges will give out a 10-8. You can do it, and sometimes they do do it, but they hardly ever do it. Um, so that was a bit of an extreme example. But anyway, listen, you, you give me a good hiding for a round for three minutes, but you don't knock me down. You win that 10-9. I nick the next round by courtesy of one jab, and, and I win that 10-9 too. Now, is that right? Um, I would argue right. that maybe that isn't right uh, because your win in that round was a significantly greater one. And should that count for a little bit more, maybe? I'm thinking that possibly it could, but then you just have arguments about what constitutes a 10-8 round as opposed to a 10-9. It wouldn't really make things any, any... It wouldn't cause less controversy put it that way but i think it's something that that that's really the only thing though that i've been thinking about other than that i think it i think the scoring system is fine it's just it has to be applied properly my my issue with the the 10 8 and it's um the, the kind of more liberal 10 8 giving is that you would see more 10 8s given out potentially incorrectly particularly what we were talking about earlier about ineffective aggression. If a guy, if one guy's swarming all over the other yeah. for three yeah. minutes, not actually doing that much, but giving the impression that he is, That's and a good all, point. all the other guy is doing his countering, you're going to get the, you're going to start seeing some really odd, odd scorecards by the end of the 10th or the 12th, where you get no, big, I'm, bigger I'm, swings than what you've got now. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you there. And, that, and that's the problem with, with any kind of change is that obviously it has to be applied correctly um and you know if i had the power to either do it or not do it i still wouldn't do it um but it's the only thing that's really occurred to me that might be worth it but on balance um yeah i think it would probably create more problems than it was than it would solve so like i said i don't think there's anything really wrong with the with the system um it's just you just need more consistency Ideally, you know, if, if you have like just super judges, a panel of absolute super judges, you just have one person doing it. If they could, if everybody totally trusted their competency, you just have one person doing it. Uh, but you can't get a five or seven or nine just because you think, oh, hopefully enough of them will get it right. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, not, it's a pretty, it's, um, you're kind of admitting defeat, really, if you're just going to do that. Exponential growth of the, uh, the panel here. Um, you, you mentioned that the kind of high profile robberies or, or weird scores that you fought. And actually it wasn't a robbery because you mentioned um, Canelo Golovkin and Wilder Fury. In the past few years, what's, what's the worst out and out kind of robbery that you quote unquote um, robbery rather that you can um, remember or that, that you, you were most kind of wound up by? I think, I think well, I've, I've got a couple here. What one's one's kind of, slightly maybe slightly heart overhead because I really wanted him to win but I remember being absolutely fuming when when Robin Reed didn't get the decision in Germany against Sven Opka oh, okay because I thought he won that fight and it would have been a massive win for him and he was always a bit of a favorite of mine um and it kind of ties in with this slightly lazy idea that it's impossible to get a decision in Germany it's, yep. it's difficult to win away anywhere um so I always remember that one because I just really wanted him to win. But the one in, in recent years during my time um, covering it where I thought, oh, no, was, was Ricky Burns, Ray Beltran. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
because Ray Beltran won that fight. I mean, he won that fight every day of the week. And it was just also an unfortunate thing when when there is uh, a decision that is commonly perceived as being wrong. What often happens is that the fighter who benefits from it somehow gets blamed, and it's nothing to do with them. Right. Right. Um, you know, it's like oh, Burns is really lucky. He's this. He's that. And people wouldn't really say that about him because he's just such an astonishingly, you know, nice, nice likable guy. But it's just whoever benefits from it, you know, it's not their fault. But that was just a bad one because you, a real bad one because you look at it and you just think, yeah, we sit around and say, oh, it's difficult to you get robbed in Germany and look at this. Um, I, I mean, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, and you know, you see the look on the face of the fighter at the end when they're boxing for a world title and that could change their life because, as we all know, challenging for the title doesn't really make you any money. Defending it does. So if you don't get a decision in a world title fight it's not just the fact that you haven't won the belt you know fans always think in terms of of belts it's it's that window might close might might have closed forever on on what could be a life-changing amount of money for, for him and his family it's it's yeah it, anyway that was the one for me yeah i mean thankfully Beltran went on to do okay didn't he but um yeah, yeah. how did you score out of interest um burns relic i thought that was one where um relic was Extremely hard on I think I think I had that. I think I had that to relic just. Mm. I think it was closer uh, than the Beltran fight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it was. I remember thinking at the time, oh, he was a bit lucky there, but I didn't think it was some kind of epic scream up that he got the decision. Right. Um, but I mean, often as well, you do have to. I mean, what I've just said there is is something that you need to be careful about. Is that. You can get used to bad decisions to the point where your 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 immunity to it becomes too high, and you're too willing to kind of shrug off what actually was a pretty bad decision because it wasn't as bad as something else. So I remember, you know, Joe Joyce in the Olympic final against Yoka. I thought that was a terrible decision. Mm. Um, but it wasn't as bad as some of the others in that competition. Right. And right. people I know who, who I really, really respect um, were saying to me, oh, I think you're getting a bit overexcited about that one, you know, of all the, of all, you know, we've, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it's not up there, is it? They're basically just saying, you know, it wasn't that bad. And I just thought, bollocks, that was a terrible decision. Um, so, yeah, you, you want to make sure that you don't, you don't, develop too thick a skin for it and just just accept things which are not really acceptable because that's just boxing you know you hear that a lot don't you oh that's boxing and it, um, it comes down to to magnitude as well doesn't it you know people will often flag up um i don't know pacquiao horn or pacquiao bradley as the worst decisions they've ever seen and actually on undercards around the world every week you'll see you know 118 10s the wrong way around that are in a much wider fights um and it's the, the road fighter or the away fighter getting getting jobbed basically but it's yeah. the, the we, magnitude of such means that you know obviously the examples yeah. are uh, yeah we, we had an interesting one on, on sky not that long before lockdown in in the golden contract with tyra mckenna and mohammed mamoon right yeah, yeah. I, I was commentating on that with matt and he had it 98 93 um, so he had a draw around. I had it 97-93. It was a really good fight, and I thought McKenna boxed really well, big step up, made a big contribution to the fight. I said all these things at the end of the fight, 
Um, but he lost that fight because yeah. Mamoun, you know, yeah. we did, and we weren't talking about whether Mamoun would get the decision or not. We just gave McKenna a lot of props and then just said, but Mamoun's won that fight, you know, he's a, he's a quality fighter. Um, and, and then he didn't get it. And, and the judges were fair, but the thing is, the judges, all of whom I've, I've got total respect for, were BBC BB, judges. They were very in line with it too. They were 96, 94, two of them, and the other one was 97, 93. Um, but he didn't win that fight. And no one will ever convince me that he did. So that was, that was an odd one for me because I just thought, I just thought, Dave definitely got that wrong, haven't they? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think they were the only three people who saw it like that, but um, yeah. It's, it was a hard one to explain. Um, flipping that question around a little bit, can you think of a fight where it was labelled by many, or de I guess decried by many, as, as a robbery, or, or most, let's say, you know, the consensus was it was robbery, but actually you thought it was okay? Bit of a harder question. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would... I would... I mean, Taylor Pursoon is one that I would mention in that kind of company because so many people seem to think that Pursoon was was robbed. Um, and it wasn't. It just wasn't a robbery at all. It was a really, really close fight. Um, I do tend to think that people can get a bit hysterical about things often. And I guess it depends on how they choose to to classify, I mean, I saw people calling Andre Ward Sergei Kovalev a robbery when Ward got the decision in the first fight. You can't call like a razor thin decision a robbery because the fact that it's really close tells you that it could have gone the other way, that, that that's just what happened on that night. I can't really think of one off, off the top of my head where, where people were screaming blue murder, that it was, yeah, some kind of, a robbery when actually the other person won, when I felt the other person won convincingly. Yeah. I can think of a lot of examples like that Ward Kovalev one where people are saying it's a robbery when I'm thinking you can't argue with either person winning that. That's just a close fight. But that the people complaining in that situation will be the people who backed the fighter who's lost or who are fans of the fighter who's lost. And that's always another thing you have to take into consideration is that who are these people who were saying these things? It's, it's like, bias, yeah, yeah, exactly. And you scroll so, down the timeline and they were screaming, come on, Crusher, let's, let's go, let's, yeah, yeah. So from my point of view, for example, I don't really, you know, it hasn't ever really happened to me, but if a fighter kind of, or trainer or manager or, or promoter, you know, said to me, oh, well, you know, that score you gave the other day, I thought that was a bit, anyone can say whatever they want to me, it's totally fine, and I, and I, and I never take it in anything other than, than good humour but I'm not going to listen really. It's very unlikely to have an effect on me because I just think, but you're his manager. <laughs> like how, and no one's ever accused me of being biased, but it's just, you just think, but you're his manager. Like how can you really claim to be impartial? Well, you're his trainer or you're his dad. By all means, say what you want to say, but it's unlikely that I'm going to take that on board because you're much more invested in this than me. Andy, we'll leave it there. Um, thank you so much for coming on. It's, um, it's been an interesting chat. No problem, mate. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Boxing Betting Show. Please do check out Andy's own podcast. It's co-hosted with Matt Macklin. Uh, it's called Macklin's Take and is available in all the usual places. On to this weekend then. 
there's still some interest, uh, but from a betting point of view, it's uh, it's a bit of a train wreck, to be honest, on paper, um, which is no fault of, of the fighters, of course. Uh, and, and what it means is that you're just going to have to dig a little bit deeper in the search for any value here, um, which is it's a bit of a departure from last week because last week it felt more. I think last week was a pretty stacked card in, in many senses, at least at a certain level, kind of that domestic level, you know, domestic Commonwealth, European or just below level. Um, it was it was really solid here. It's a bit more lopsided. I think that if you take the five favorites in the five fights and put them into a five way accumulator, uh, you end up with odds of around uh, 1.38 uh, with bet 365. So that's. Uh, two to five uh, minus 250 in US odds. So that's across all five fights. So so I said it in last week's show, it doesn't necessarily mean that these are not well-matched fights, but it, what it means is that if they are, the layers, the odds makers and the general public have got to get completely wrong, um, which does happen, uh, but for it to happen five times over on one card seems unlikely. So if two to five five-way accumulators aren't your thing, um, and I can tell you pretty categorically that they should not be, where do you turn then as a better this weekend? Actually, that was rounded up for complete clarity. Uh, minus 138 is uh, minus 263 uh, in US odds, so even wider than before. Um, I guess one approach would be to look at the underdogs. Obviously, uh, a minus 250 slash 2 to 5 uh, accumulator or, or parlay um, tells you that the bookmakers don't really fancy the chance of there being a single upset, um, let alone multiple. However, it might be one route uh, rather than kind of siding with or finding some way to side with double digit favourites um, as we've got here. The question then is uh, where or rather who? Starting at the foot of the card, uh, 20 year old Hopi Price looks an interesting prospect uh featherweight one of dave coldwell's fighters only two and oh so far but uh, as you'd expect hasn't faced much resistance he's up against johnny phillips uh phillips is five and four and i presume that's going to be a six rounder now one thing to note is that phillips normally fights at a higher weight uh, most of his last few fights have been at super feather for stephen smith at 140 so bigger man than price or at least a bit more kind of filled out uh, you'd imagine that price would step up um, through the divisions as he uh, as he gets a bit older as well but for now that might be one variable to consider phillips has never been stopped and looking at his record now he's kind of moving into that journeyman territory really nonetheless if you listen to him at the press conference he's certainly going to give this a go of course you'd expect price to be too good so Phillips at 10 to 1 is no surprise, but it may be a, a little step up. And that really is the story of the card. You also have Akib Fiab, uh, at best a 1 to 9, uh, minus 900 favourite, and shorter in places, 1 to 12, uh, 1 to 14, uh, so minus 1200, minus 1400. Again, Fiab is an interesting looking prospect. Um, he had an outing on the last uh, matchroom show before lockdown which was the Scott Quigg John O'Carroll card back in March. He takes on Kane Baker here 13 and 6. Baker is best price 7 to 1 underdog, uh, shorter in places 5 to 1, 11 to 2 so plus 550, 13 to 2 plus 650. Um, but odds aside probably the most intriguing stat about this fight 
is that neither man has a knockout win to their name. Fias 5 and 0, no knockouts. Baker 13 and 6, no knockouts. You'd assume then that this is going to go the eight round distance, but this week is quite frustrating really in terms of the odds being posted. At time of recording, several of these undercard fights don't have any markets uh, listed for them other than the outright winner. So, um, I mean, I imagine that will be short when it is posted, if it is posted at all. When you're looking at a card that's stacked with heavy favourites, the least you might expect is that you'd have some um, side markets and, and prop markets to delve into. There's none of that here just yet, so it's kind of slim pickings all round, really. Up at light middleweight, you have Anthony Fowler taking on Adam Harper over 10 rounds. And now Fowler is the biggest favourite on the card. Best price 1 to 20, so minus 2,000. Uh, and much wider in places, um, as short as 1 to 33, uh, 1 to 50, 1 to 100 listed as well. Harper is another fighter on the bill without a single knockout win to his name. Surely must be some kind of record. He's 9-1, and one, with his solitary loss coming at the hands of Michael Zarafa, who of course has proven himself at a much higher level, so there's no shame in that. You would expect, certainly, that Fowler will have too much for him. At 1 to 20, I realise that's not the most insightful piece of commentary you're going to get this week. Um, Fowler certainly is going to be targeting, you'd imagine, um, Ted Cheeseman. Uh, I think, though, with Cheeseman now well-ranked with the IBF, he'll be looking upwards. To me, I think Fowler versus Eggington is probably much more likely. Um, but style-wise, I think that's a, that's a fun fight. Harper then is a 9-1 to general underdog here. Uh, I think he's come across quite well, actually. Uh, he's popped up on a few podcasts over the past few months, I think. Uh, Macklin's take actually being one of them. He's got a good story. Um, he's told it well, and he's certainly going to give it a go. 9-1 to implies, of course, a 10% chance of victory, but his price is a little bit longer in places as well. Uh, best price available, 14-1, to 1, so less than 7% uh, chance the bookies give him of upsetting Fowler. This is one of the fights that has the methods available. Fowler by stoppage is, unsurprisingly, the most favoured outcome. Uh, general price, Four to one on, so 80% implied probability that Fowler will get this done inside the 10 rounds. Feels about right. Uh, I think it's hard to argue with that, really. A little bit bigger, actually. Hills have it 3 to 10, 2 to 7 with Betway, so minus 350. Uh, Fowler by decision, 3 to 1, uh, 11 to 4 in places as well. Nice kind of quirk in Fowler's record, actually. Since stepping up to the 10 round duration, he's had five fights over that distance, or at least his scheduled distance. Two of those he won by stoppage, and both of those were in the first round. The other three went the distance. Uh, two of those he won, and one of those he lost, obviously, to Scott Fitzgerald. Now, Fowler has talked about moulding his style to something a little bit more refined, perhaps, um, since moving to Shane McGuigan. But nonetheless, he is a guy who likes a finish, and he's got a good finisher's instinct uh, as well. Uh, Fowler in rounds one to five, then, looking for the early finish. Uh, it's odds against uh, with Skybet, 6-5, to five, so plus 120. That may be the, the standout price there. 12 rounds for the Commonwealth Cruiserweight title sees challenger Nathan Forley go up against Chris Billum-Smith. Billum-Smith around a 1-20 to 20 favourite, um, slightly bigger in places, so a similar kind of range to Fowler, albeit a bit less variance across the industry. 1-10 to 10 is the best price available on Billum-Smith, 1-12, uh, to 1-14 to 14 as well. Uh, Thorley, best price around eight to one, and nine to one available as well, and as short as six to one, thirteen to two, so plus six fifty. 
Forley, to be blunt, looks to be taking a pretty monumental step up in class here. Uh, it's got a nice shiny record, 14-0, 6 uh, KOs within that. But within those 14 fights, he's only fought two guys with a winning record. Um, last outing was uh, last December in a four-rounder. Uh, previous, a six-rounder, six-rounder, four-rounder, eight-rounder. He's fought once over 10 rounds. Uh, but until a couple of years ago, Forley was fighting at light heavyweight. And since stepping up to cruiserweight, he's fought three journeymen, frankly, uh, two from Lithuania, one from Latvia, uh, combined defeats between them, 268. Billim Smith then looks to be a pretty good fighter at this kind of level. Did himself no harm whatsoever, really, uh, with that split decision loss to Richard Riekpoor, and so was quickly invited back, went to Liverpool and stopped Craig Glover in Glover's home city. Billum Smith can certainly punch. 9k wins in 10 tells the story there. He's 7 to 2 on, so minus 350 uh, to get this done inside the distance. Uh, 4 to 1 to win by decision. Thorley, uh, 16 to 1 to stop Billum Smith here, uh, and around 12 to 1 to get the nod on the cards. The bookies reckon this is uh, about 80% likely not to go the distance. They make that 1 to 4, uh, so 4 to 1 on. Uh, minus 400 that judges are not required. Billum Smith inside the first six rounds, uh, 11 to 10, uh, so plus 110 with Skybet, um, slightly bigger in places as well, so 5 to 4, um, Paddy Power plus 125. Uh, Billum Smith inside the first four rounds, uh, 11 to 4, so plus 275 with Paddy Power Betfair. In the main event then, Terry Harper and Natasha Jonas square off in what I think will be the first example of a world title fight being contested in what used to be someone's back garden. Harper, the WBC champion down at 130, makes her first defence here and she's a big favourite to defend it successfully. Uh, 1 to 9, so minus 900 implies a 90% chance that she will do so. Now only a couple of years ago those odds would have been scarcely believable really. Jonas, of course, was the decorated amateur uh, and then ran into Vivian Obanoff in 2018 uh, and stopped before midway in what was an enormous upset. Uh, Obanoff was around 30 to 1 plus that night as the underdog. Jonas then, who has dusted herself off since and won three on the bounce, uh, is still a pretty sizable underdog here. Uh, 9 to 1, best price, 7 to 1. General price about 6 to 1 across the industry, uh, so plus 600, shortest price around, uh, about 11 to 2, so plus 550, uh, that's with Bet365. And what that means is that the layers reckon she's got no more than about a 15% chance. In the method send, a Harper stoppage is the most favoured outcome. Uh, 8 to 11, so minus 137, approaching 60% um, that Harper gets it done inside the 10 round distance. And I think that might be, if you are looking for an angle on the fight, that might be something to consider opposing. Uh, all of the talk really is, and, and certainly in the build-up, is that Harper will go looking for the stoppage. She thinks it, she's capable of doing it. But for me, that might be a little bit short for someone who's gone the distance in her last two fights. And I think at 8 to 11, what that price is doing is factoring in the Obanoff defeat for Jonas as something more than an aberration. Now, of course, the jury is still out, really, on whether that was the case. But let me put it to you like this. There aren't all that many women's fights at this level in which I would say a stoppage is 60% likely, let alone for one person. And I'm not convinced this is one of them. A Harper decision is as big as 15 to 8, so plus 188. 
uh, and those odds imply a less than 35% chance that Harper will get the nod on the cards. And I think that might be underplaying it a little bit. For Jonas then, a price of 12 to 1 generally that she will get the decision. Uh, 16 to 1 for her to stop Harper. It's odds against that this fight goes the distance. Um, you can get 5 to 4, uh, 6 to 5 on the fight going the 10 rounds. That's a plus 120, 125. Uh, 8 to 13, so minus 138 that the fight ends inside the duration. But a different approach here might be to look at the over-unders. Um, and there's still some good prices, actually. Over 6.5 rounds is 4 to 6, so minus 150 uh, that will make it that far. 11 to 10, slight odds against that we don't. But there's a few ways to slice this. Over 5.5 rounds, uh, 2 to 1 on, so minus 200. Uh, 6 to 4 um, odds against that it does not. Uh, but the main line is over 7.5. Uh, 10 to 11, uh, so minus 110 that it goes over that. And a best price of 19 to 20. Uh, with Betway, so just inside even money, then it goes under. You're listening to The Boxing Betting Show. Now, I may talk about this in more detail on a future show, but I think one of the best lessons I've learned over the years, and probably one of the most valuable skills you can learn as a punter, is to know when not to get involved, which is just as important as to know when it is to pull the trigger. This might be one of those weeks. Generally, if you're scrabbling around trying to find a pick rather than seeing something that jumps out at you from the page, that's a telltale sign that perhaps it's best to keep your powder dry. Now, whether you keep a record of your bets or otherwise, I imagine if you were to look back at some of your kind of most painful losers over the years, it would be those that you've kind of talked yourself into when you weren't quite sure or you were just looking for something to bet on, maybe for entertainment or just because you were watching the event and wanted something to cheer on. Whereas a well-researched bet that you've really studied, that you feel you've got an edge on uh, and that the numbers stack up, it's hard, win or lose, really, to, to really feel too much regret about those. And, and instead, it's the kind of impulsive money that you might throw away on a Saturday night, settling down to watch a card uh, that kind of stings for a little while. So I think that would probably be my advice here. If there's nothing that's really uh, grabbing you, take a step back and leave it alone. There's as much to be gained by not losing sometimes as there is to be winning. Um and you see it in other sports sometimes, particularly with Asian handicap and draw no bet markets, where perhaps not losing can be as valuable and educational as perhaps winning might have been. The show will be back next week with a look at both the third instalment of Fight Camp and the Frank Warren Queensbury show the following night. In the meantime, uh, enjoy the fights this weekend. Uh, please gamble responsibly. And thank you for listening. 